welcome to episode 245 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I think it's time for a little discipline. What do you think? Oh, man. Let's get discipline. Discipline. (laughs) Let's get disciplined. How did I know that that's, that was going to make the same joke and you beat me to it? Yes. We're like this. It's like a hive mind. Yes. Something about bringing that into that song, like the idea of discipline is like right on point. Beautiful. So this episode, again, we, our goal in every episode we start is to bury the lead. Yes. And we're going to do that by saying, we're about to talk about church discipline. So if that's something that you're interested in and spoiler alert, you should be. Yes. We're going to get to that whole thing. But before we do... Let's get into our usual custom of affirmations and denials. So I turn it over to you, good sir. Which would you like to start with? I'm going to start with an affirmation, and I'm excited about this affirmation. So we got sent a manuscript for a book that was, as of that time, unpublished, but is now published. Uh, And the book is called Gospel Smugness, and it's written by a guy named Blake Long. And uh, the the thesis of the book is, it's really, really good. You know, his his point is that (laughs) the gospel is offensive on its own. And we live in a culture that is already offended by like every possible thing and even things that shouldn't be offensive. And so his point is in this book, how do we present an offensive gospel to an offense, offendable people without adding our own levels of offensiveness to it. And so the book is great. It it's just runs through, you know, different topics and different questions around that idea. And the idea is, is basically like, uh, don't be smug in your evangelism. And how, how often do we do that, right? I can remember times in like high school where I'd be sharing, sharing the gospel with someone. And even though I was a, I was a sort of a, a baby Calvinist at the time, there was still this sense of like, well, I'm one of the chosen ones. So like, you really got to get with the program. Right. And the, the idea of the book is like, we really need to get away from that. We need to, if the gospel is going to be offensive, it should be offensive on its own terms, not on, on these other things that we add to it. So check it out. Um, you can buy it online where you get books. And uh, I know that he worked hard on this and uh, was a, a sort of a passion project of his. So I'm excited, excited, excited. I'm excited <laughs> to give this my recommendation. I love that. I feel like we've had an episode of this where we talked about how the gospel worship on the Lord's day is like an intensely intimate thing. And it's okay if people come into that and they're like, this is a little bit awkward for the natural man to try to understand what's happening here. That's totally okay. But sometimes we sense that it's not okay or that we should feel guilty that somebody would come into the midst of worship or the gospel and say, there's something about this that's totally offensive. So then we couch it, we take the edges off, we sand it down and we create some kind of derivative thing that's not really the gospel. It's just like this watered down. Like, does anybody really love like the light version of an app? Like at some point you say like, I want the real thing. Exactly. Give me the meat. Give me the center cut. So it's great to have a book that kind of affirms that, listen, this kind of thing, when you present it, like you could be the most demure person and you could present the gospel to somebody. They'd be like, that is offensive. And you should be like, thank you so much. Yep, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. Okay. And, and I think what we what we see is the extra offense that we add to the gospel usually mm. actually comes about because we've confused what the gospel is. 
Yes. Right. If if people are offended by your gospel presentation because it's too Republican, it might mean that you. I feel like I'm doing a Jeff Worthy bit. You know, you've added to the gospel. <laughs> if uh, it might mean that you've added republicanism or conservatism or whatever it might be that right. you've added that to the gospel and they're not actually offended at the gospel although they probably are but they're offended at what you've added to the gospel not always but it's something to think about if if someone responding to your evangelism is critiquing something that's not the gospel you have to figure out where that came from so check it out you can buy it on um you can buy a kindle version on um Amazon, it's it's available and it's just really a good. It's a short book. You could probably get through it in just an hour or two if you're uh, want to set aside the time. And uh, you know, like I said, he worked hard on it. And I haven't read the whole thing yet, but from what I've read, it's a very good treatment of the subject. It's a very reasonable approach that that is really seeking to make the gospel the central part of our evangelism and to make God's name great, being the central part of our evangelism, rather than some of this other stuff that I think we we get added onto it. I love it. We could end the episode right there. Yep, there you go. We're not Should going we? to, but we could. Okay, we're going to keep going? Yeah, we're right. going to keep going. So what what have you got to affirm today, Jesse? I'm also going with the book Affirmation. And I'm just going to jump on this bandwagon. I've seen this online, especially on Facebook and Twitter. And that is, I'm affirming the banner of truth celebrating 60 years of publishing Puritan works, especially what they call Puritan paperbacks. Oh man. That's basically their version of taking all of these beautiful Puritan works in writing that were in kind of sometimes the old original language and English that were a little bit cumbersome, taking them, modernizing them, not sacrificing any of the beautiful and amazing content and republishing them for modern or contemporary consumption. So I'm just on the Banner of Truth website right now and I see that you can buy all of the Puritan paperback series. There's That's 49 books for $407. Now, nice. I realize that sounds like a lot of money. I've gathered some of these books over time. I almost wish I hadn't so I could just go out and save the money up and buy this entire series because these are works that have influenced Christians throughout generations. And they're so beautiful. I would say in almost every way, there's no contemporary writing just like this. And as I'm looking at the website and I'm looking at this particular where you can buy like the whole series itself, which like if you got, if I got 49 books in the mail, <laughs> I would love that <laughs> so much. Like I almost want to order this just for the sake of like getting this giant box of amazing books yeah. and my wife saying, what have you done to yes. us? Where there's no place in our shelving to put these books. But I want to read to you quickly, just like one testimony. This is from Paul Washer. Here's what he says, quote, I cannot exaggerate the blessing that Banner of Truth has been to my life and the lives of my colleagues. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you, end quote. <laughs> just, just kidding. The first part was him, but he talks about- I mean, the second part was him too, actually, just yeah, not second. in that context. <laughs> Fair enough. That was all Paul Washer. I've just mixed together like two distinctly different circumstances. It's like a Paul Washer mixtape. Oh my gosh. That's another brilliant idea. Somebody take that up. Somebody do that. Just put them, <laughs> put them all together, smash them together, like do yes. a mashup. But these books are so incredible. And what I'm reading right now is actually uh, The Doctrine of Repentance. And that again is a, a Puritan paperback. I, I really can't also underemphasize how much these books have meant to me. And as I'm reading Thomas Watson right now in his book, I just am continually blessed by the banner of truth as a publishing house and arm undertaking this idea of modernizing some of the language so that it's 
discernible and communicable and easily understood by people in their modern tongue. And these books have just been such a blessing. Here's the thing about these books. I have passed along these books. Like literally I passed along versions that I've read and underlined and said like somebody needs to read these now to people of all walks of life, of all experience with theology. And here's the amazing thing that I found is I can't tell you how many times I passed along a book to somebody that's like, ah, like theology really isn't my thing. And they read these works and they're, they come back to me and be like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever read aside from the Bible. I'd be like, yes, <laughs> like that, because God's truth is for everyone. And that the Puritans did such a great job in articulating that truth. So they, I think there's like a list on the Banner of Truth website, which is super fun, where you can see all the books, all these 49. Just get them all. Like, this is like the Pokemon of like Puritan writing, right? Like, <laughs> how did just I catch know them you all. were going to go, you were going to end up there? <laughs> you seem, you really love that metaphor lately. <laughs> I do, because like, isn't there something beautiful about, like, I presume like the whole Pokemon thing is like inclusiveness, like, getting everything together, like a fully orbed view of like the universe of truth when Pokemon's like understand about that. It's like, just catch them all. That's, that's like the, the <laughs> imperative, right? Like that's, I mean, I guess, I guess. I, yeah, no, not really, but let's roll with that. I mean, it's about like, it's like, it's a collection. It's like, like stamp collecting. It's not about a comprehensive view of the universe. It's about completing a collection. But like you, the, the completed collection is like getting them all. So like the universe of Pokemon is something you get to experience, right? Uh, and not really. No, <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> Great. This, this totally was where I wanted to go with this. Awesome. All right. Well, with that being said, I mean, do you, do you have anything you want to add before we go into some denial action? No, I mean, I guess I could just deny that metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, uh, I do it. have a real denial, though, so I'll I'm, leave your I'm metaphor the on the table. Right. Let's throw it on the table. So it's been a little while since we've had a COVID-related d- denial. Uh, but as as the discussion changes from is COVID real or not, plot twist, yes, COVID is and was <laughs> real. Uh, or as it's changed, as churches have opened and it's no longer should you go to church, should, you, should your church stay closed. Now it has pivoted to... What uh, what should you do if your employer asks you if you've been vaccinated or, you know, says you can you can come to work and you don't have to wear a mask as long as you've been vaccinated. And one of the things that invariably comes up in this is this this idea that your employer has no right to ask anything about your health, that, that, that they just don't have any moral or legal right to ask that. And what I'm denying specifically is a feature of these conversations where invariably somebody will say that is a violation of HIPAA. And I know quite a bit about HIPAA uh, from my own limited scope at uh, working in the healthcare field. Yeah, you First, do. HIPAA is H-I-P-A-A. Uh, not H-I-P-P-A, right? So if you're interacting with someone online and says that violates HIPAA and it's got two Ps, then automatically you know they don't know what they're talking about. But HIPAA is a, is a law uh, that actually falls under, I believe it's the, uh, the ADA, the American Disability yes. Act. Uh, it was incorporated alongside that, which we can, I mean, there's all sorts of political conversations about combining bills and stuff. But what it does and what it's for is it's there to regulate how certain medical entities, 
primarily healthcare providers, but then also other businesses and organizations that are associated with and interact with healthcare providers. Think like your insurance company, your health insurance company, maybe the police come and they request medical records. HIPAA is there to structure and regulate how medical healthcare entities and associated entities manage and disclose or more more likely don't disclose your medical right. information. So it has nothing to do with your employer unless perhaps you are like me and you work for a HIPAA-related entity, then right. they do have an obligation to preserve your records. Um, but but your, your boss at uh, Trader Joe's uh, or the, the door greeter at Trader Joe's when you come to do your shopping for your whole grain quinoa or whatever it is, uh, is not obligated by HIPAA in any sense of the word at all. So them asking you if you're vaccinated is not a violation of HIPAA. Your uh, manager at work uh, somehow inadvertently disclosing to people that you are vac- you are not vaccinated because everyone else can wear no mask and they're vaccinated and you have to wear a mask. Ergo, they know you are not vaccinated. Uh, none of that is a HIPAA violation. There may be other laws, and in most states there are, that, that protect your health care information and regulate what your employer can and can't require of you. But the fact is uh, it has very little to do with HIPAA in most circumstances. Uh, if the police pull you over and somehow the conversation of vaccinations come up and they ask you if you're vaccinated because in your municipality, everyone's required to wear a mask and they want to give you an extra little ticket on top of that, that is not a violation of HIPAA. Uh, and and here's, here's where I think it's important. I've had very few people online who, when I point out that's not a HIPAA issue, who actually do the research and then come back and say, you know what, you were right. But the fact of the matter is this is a Ninth Commandment issue because when you say something is a HIPAA issue and it's not, you are not telling the truth. Whether you know it or not, you're not telling the truth. And we're obligated to be a people who promote truth between man and man, and that involves properly explaining and understanding it. Um, and and it, just, it just drives me nuts because it really has nothing to do with the conversation. Um, in most cases, your employer is allowed to ask you almost anything about your health care. Um, they are not allowed to take action in response to certain things. And so it might be prudent for them not to ask you. Um, for example, a, a, a doctor could not ask you uh, about uh, like if you were a woman, they couldn't ask you. They could ask you if you were pregnant, but they couldn't take any action on the basis of you being pregnant. So it's usually wise not to because then it's not possible for you to take action on it. Um, but, yeah, it, HIPAA has nothing to do with it. Joe tra- Trader Joe's, you know. Walmart, all those places can ask you whatever they want about your health, and it's not a HIPAA violation. And in reality, well, Walmart might not be because they have like minute clinics and stuff like that. But you get the point. Everyone out there gets the point. Just stop saying it. It, it, it all, if you think it's a HIPAA violation, <laughs> it's probably not a HIPAA violation because right. you're probably not talking about a situation where a medical professional has disclosed something about your health care. Yes. I thought you really were about to go into like, this is not how this works. It's not how any of this works. It's not how any of this works. Yeah. And just so people know, uh, just so like you get a sense and a flavor for like actually what HIPAA means, it stands for Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. So that itself should give you some sense that there's like a narrow scope with respect to what it applies to. It's not this like carte blanche, like we're not talking about like personal identification of information, like that stuff. This is a particular thing that's relevant to like healthcare industry in particular. Right. So you can't just like claim this everywhere yes. and say like, it, but if you're going to, you ought to understand it. And I think 
kind of as I try to interpret what you're saying is it's not that like, listen, we shouldn't be concerned about this or like you can invoke hiccup, but, but you should really know what it means right. before you just like go out on the Internet and start like putting everybody on blast yeah. about it. Yeah. And little known fact about HIPAA is actually HIPAA requires your doctor to disclose your health information in certain circumstances. Yes. Namely, when it might be something pertinent to your insurance in terms of collecting your bill or properly charging your premium. So it could even be conceivable, and I'm not saying whether this is right or wrong, but it's conceivable that at some point you may have to pay a premium if you are an, an additional premium on your health insurance if you're not vaccinated. Some places you have to pay an additional premium if you are a cigarette smoker. And so if your insurance company gets a bill for nicotine gum and they call your doctor and say, did you prescribe nicotine gum because they're a, per- they're a smoker, your healthcare provider is required to say, yes, they reported to us they're a smoker. They not only have not violated HIPAA, they actually are doing what HIPAA requires. So it's a law that's complicated. It's confusing. But in almost no circumstances that I'm seeing people talk about it online, does it actually apply to what they're talking about? Yeah, because this is more about something we've talked about before, where it's like people just want to assert their rights. They don't want they want a certain sense of like privacy. That's not HIPAA. So you just have to be careful, like how you invoke it and how you use it conversation, because just like can I use this? Can I use this example again? Just like pedo baptism. If you invoke that in a conversation and be like, oh, the Bible doesn't say anything about children being baptized, you're about to get owned. That's like your signal that you're about to get owned by somebody who understands the full breadth and scope of like the covenant relationship that God has with his people. You just need to know what you're getting into before you get there. And again, it's health insurance portability and accountability act. Like that just says something about where it's emphasis actually lies. Don't mistake. Don't get it twisted. This, this is like our public service announcement. Also, I have to say, this is the kind of thing that keeps getting us like nominated for top 50 healthcare podcasts. We're not even trying anymore, but we end up in this conversation. And so therefore, because the information is so good that you're bringing to us, we just <laughs> end up getting put at the top 50. I feel like if we get nominated as a healthcare institution anymore, we might actually become a HIPAA <laughs> entity just on this show. So I think we like should be we, careful. We would have to comply with the regulation. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so I don't, don't know what that means for you and I. In addition to calling and not leaving your phone number, please do not <laughs> do not leave private uh, health information on our on our voicemail. Yes, that's fair. We should let's just give that disclosure now because we would <laughs> give it at the end. We want you to call us. We absolutely want you to leave messages for us. But again, any kind of like personally identifying information besides like your name and even your first name is just that's just best. That's probably best practice. Yeah, but please. No, like medical history. We don't need your chart. Don't have your doctor send it over to us. We appreciate that you would trust us with that. But Tony and I, not doctors. Shh. It's true. I'm not. I'm not. I don't even play a doctor on TV. <laughs> Is that still a thing that people say that I play one on TV? I don't know. I have no idea. I'm old now. I don't know what the, like the young people are saying. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know something about. I don't know. I don't even want to try. I'm going to say something offhand that that ends up making people leave us bad reviews because it's gross or something. <laughs> so Jesse, let's uh, let's move Fair on enough. to your denial at this point. Yes, I'm going to push us forward and keep this really really brief. It happened again, or at least it slightly happened again. I was with a good friend of mine yesterday, a brother in Christ. We were walking along the water. We encountered a group of geese. I wanted to move through the geese as Moses might have parted the geese to lead the people through them. This is horrible mixed metaphor. 
And there was a large goose that snapped at us. We literally said, nope. And we turned around and walked well out of our way to avoid this group of geese. So I'm just denying. I want to tell them. I want to show them that I respect them. I just want to pass through. I mean them no harm. But at this point, it, it's done. And so I'm just denying against the aggressiveness of geese. I don't know if that's like a, a part of the fall that... There is a natural goose and a spiritual goose in a way, and I just want them <laughs> to recognize that. Again, I, I mean them no ill harm. So I'm just like, it also, this comes on the heels of, I explained this to my wife, and she was like, well, I, she told me this story. Where she's like, I just spoke to somebody today who said they were in the same area you were, were running through geese, and a goose elevated and tried to basically attack their face. And I was yeah. like, man, I can't handle that. I, like, it's one thing that they're like nipping at your ankles, which is what happened to me. And that's painful enough. But like this elevation of like a goose beak into like your eye or your face. I'm just I like, know. man, why? Why are you so aggressive? I just want to love you. I, I uh, when I used to live at the seminary, we would get the same email every year. And it was like the best email. It was like, <laughs> it was like turkey email day. <laughs> Because we did an email when the turkeys started coming out again that was like, beware, the turkeys are aggressive, but mm. if they come at you, you have to show them who's boss because otherwise they will learn oh, really? that they're the boss. And <laughs> so we were like, the thing was like, if you have a hose, spray them with water. If they're on the oh path, chase them off the path. And they're like, this is especially important because they will try to dominate anything that's smaller than them. And there are a lot of young children on campus. Oh my so gosh. Basically at this point the the turkeys have executed the creation mandate over you cuz now or the or the geese I mean cuz yeah, now yeah. they have they have exercised dominion on you <sighs> and determine where you can and cannot go. So but so here's the thing now I feel like you're invoking like most of Genesis on me and like I need to then go back like I should we should stop recording right now. I feel yeah. like what you're saying to me is like do not stop do not walk go and run to them. And show them who's boss. What's funny is we actually, this uh, great brother of, my, of mine, we had a conversation about what it would be like to punt a goose and whether or not we could emotionally handle the aftermath of like, because I feel like once you punt a goose, that feeling stays with you. It does. Forever. It does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, we shared my story of me punting a goose last, last week and that was exactly 20 years now. And, uh, I still, I can still feel that. Can you that. still sense that feeling? I can. If you had I can to go still back feel to that, that place. goose's head on my foot and then I can sense, I can feel the adrenaline <laughs> even just now it's bubbling up as I think about that goose doing like a karate style kip up and coming after me. So, so I, I think you should stop the recording. I think you should live stream going to show the goose who's boss. Because I would, I would the Reformed like Brotherhood at large wants to see this. I would kind of like to do that because I saw, I was really grateful for those. Somebody had posted like a meme of me trying to it's you true. Know, politely extract myself from a goose while being attacked. I really appreciate that support. I actually <laughs> would like to film it because it's, I can't describe this to anybody. Maybe you know because you've been exposed to large birds. We approached this group and we were trying, I, I, I'm telling you, we were trying not to be fearful and then they started to get aggressive. And it was like, it's a scary thing. I, yeah, it's kind of a freaky thing. So, like, I, I don't know what to say. Like, it's possible we're being pansies. It's also possible that uh, the goose was trying to look for where my eyes were. So, yeah. and just try to pluck them out. So, like Samson style. I have no idea. So, all that to say, I'll keep everybody. I'll keep everybody posted. But being that we're, this is another instance of basically. I would say bad behavior 
That's as good as any point to launch off into what we're actually talking about on this episode, at least allegedly, and that is church discipline. And it's actually hard to believe that up to this point, 245, we haven't talked about this. Maybe we talked around this. I think that we talked about whether we're talking about theological matters, talking about heresy, that perhaps we've dipped our toe into what church discipline is like, but I don't think we've actually ever had a full, robust conversation about it. So I welcome this because yes. I think this is something that we ought to really speak about. And we should say at the top, I think, that we're not speaking about this because it's like somehow our theological hobby horse. Like we've talked about James White recently. We've talked about all kinds of, we talked about Doug Wilson at great length for yeah. people that we disagree with, like fundamentally and profoundly on theological matters. But I want to make the break that that's not exactly what we're talking about here. I think we want to get after what is church discipline? Why should it occur? Is it necessary? And what does it look like? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first thing to establish about church discipline, right? We're going to talk through the Matthew 18 passage. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, we but are. Church discipline properly understood does not start when something goes wrong, right? Yes. Discipline and discipleship are actually, they're actually, you can hear it. They're the same root. They're the same word in Greek, the same understanding that when you discipline someone, you are discipling someone. And when you disciple someone, you are teaching them a discipline. And so properly understood, church discipline starts when the word is preached and when the sacraments are administered, right? When we talk about the uh, the marks of the true church that came out of the Reformation, we have the, the gospel or the word rightly proclaimed. We have the, the sacraments or ordinances rightly administered. And then we have church discipline rightly executed. And right. the reason that those three things are the three marks of the church is because they are all interwoven. Preaching the gospel, preaching the law, and a- administering the sacraments, and I think especially the Lord's table— those are forms of church discipline. And so even before we get to the Matthew 18 passage, or we'll, talk, we'll probably yes. talk about what happens in Corinth, before we even get to that, we have to acknowledge that that's already down the road a little bit. And th- that part of it is often missed in discussions of church discipline. Um, you know, I'll hear people say, you know, have you ever been in a church discipline uh, situation. And what I, every time I've asked that, I kind of chuckle and I say, yeah, I was in one last Sunday. And they kind of go, oh man. And I was like, yeah, and the Sunday before that. And they're like, oh man. It's like, I mean, in fact, every Sunday that I can remember, as long as I've right. been a Christian, I've been involved right. in church discipline. And then they start to catch on. And, and I kind of say, because the preaching of the word is a form of church discipline. But more often than not, when people talk about church discipline, they're really speaking about this specific kind of a situation where something has gone wrong. Either it's something that's gone wrong interpersonally between Christians, uh, or it's something that's gone wrong that the church has identified, or maybe it's a public a public scandal or a, um, a grave sin that requires the immediate attention of the church. And they're talking specifically about that process of like, okay, now right. what do Christians do to handle this situation and how do we maintain a certain a certain semblance of order or purity within the church and that's what they're talking about when they say church discipline yeah so again once again like you stole everything that i want to say so thank you for that so i mean basically i love this that you couched it that way because it's almost like every gospel proclaiming church teaches and disciples but so few practice church discipline. Right. And I love that you were like, listen, people, just listen to the words here. Like, yeah. they're, they're similar. They're coming from the same root. So, like, making disciples without some kind of discipline makes as much sense as, like, I say, like a math teacher who explains the lesson 
to his or her students, but never corrects the students' mistakes. Yeah. You know, like that, that's not actually communicating like the truth of reality as God has explained it to us. So the normative pedagogical process emphasizes this common etymological root of disciple and discipline, which involves teaching and correction. Right. And to your point, like anytime your pastor, if you have a good pastor who's like, again, has fidelity to scriptures, he's both teaching and correcting. That correcting might not be like explicit or dramatic, but it is correction, right? Like if you're, yep. if he's like exegeting properly the scriptures to you, it's constantly chipping away at what is like false impression of what the Bible teaches. So the reluctance to practice church discipline may suggest, I think in some cases, that we believe ourselves to be wiser, more loving than God. Because God, after all, he disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. That's like yeah. Hebrews 12. That's like standard fare for how God interacts with us. So there is a purpose to discipline. God is disciplining his children for the sake of their life, growth, and health. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. And of course, I don't think you and I would ever say like, well, discipline is like super comfortable and awesome, often and awesome at times. It can be uncomfortable and painful, but it pays off. No discipline seems pain, seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvestness of righteousness for peace for those who have been trained by it. Again, that's Hebrews 12. So yeah. I love this topic because I think you're setting us up to say like, maybe we haven't thought about church discipline in a while. Maybe we have the false definition of it, and maybe we need a little bit more of it. Yeah, and I just want to add, this is um, Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 24, and that, you know, we, we read the Proverbs and we understand that typically a proverb has um, application beyond just like what the immediate thing that's in view is. So in view here sure. has to do with disciplining your children, but the, the idea of discipline itself and the purpose of discipline is a principle that we can draw out of this. And it says, whoever spares the rod, speaking of the rod of discipline, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So I right. know that there are a lot of churches. It's it's funny. I had this I had this situation online where I was in a conversation with somebody. Uh, it wasn't in a, it wasn't in a group. It was actually on somebody's wall, and the person was just totally out of line. And we'll talk about the steps here. But I followed all the steps. I messaged them privately. I, I, I made a group chat with a couple other people who witnessed it. And then finally, I I put went back to the thread and I said, "Does anybody know the contact information for the church of this person? Because I I need to get in touch with their elders." And someone I knew from seminary who wasn't involved in the conversation didn't know the person I was talking to said something like, "Why would you do that? Why would you do that?" And I said, "Well, because this person has sinned against me, and it's for their benefit that their pastor gets involved. It's not. It's not." It's not punitive. I'm not trying to make, I'm not trying to tattletale on them, but obviously right. something has gone wrong. It's beyond what I'm able to do. It's beyond what I'm able to work through and reconcile. And so this discipline process is actually for their benefit. And that's the first thing we have to remember when we're talking about church discipline right is it's not exclusively the case that the only purpose of church discipline is to restore the lost brother. It is the case though, that that is the primary uh, goal in mind in the process of church discipline is to seek to win back and recover a brother who's either sinned and just needs a little bit of correction or someone who has sinned so gravely that they uh, have set themselves outside of the church. Even then we are still supposed to be seeking to win them back to a reconciliation or repentance. Right. 
And that's, that's important to remember is that even, you know, Paul in Corinthians, he says, get this guy out of here, send him out so that Satan can discipline his flesh. And then in second Corinthians, it appears that that worked and Paul's overjoyed that this guy has come back into the fold. So it's, it's not the case that we should ever be seeking to do church discipline to kind of get rid of somebody. That's not the point, even though that may be the outcome is that we've sort of exiled someone outside of the camp and, and we have to treat them as though they're exiled outside of the camp where it kind of defeats the purpose. we shouldn't really be giddy or happy about that. Yeah. And you and I, have, I think I've been like pretty outspoken over the past of these, all these episodes and conversations that the visible church can, includes both the tears and the wheat. And right. so like that sifting will happen at some point, but even when the gospel is being preached, there will some, there will be some who will stand up and say like, I just can't get down with that. And you'll be yeah. like, all right, peace out. Like we, right. we understand that we're not trying to purposely breed division and yet, based on all the way back to your affirmation, the gospel is a polarizing thing. Right. And what it requires can often be polarizing. The natural man cannot submit to the gospel message. And so because of that, there's going to be time where people just want morality that comes from Christianity. They want the superstructure of being good and somehow having a meritorious earning of their own salvation. And when the gospel is preached, there are those who will say, I just can't get down with that. Right. And they'll be aggressive even against it. And so church discipline ultimately leads to church growth in the same way though, that like pruning a rose bush reads, leads to more roses, roses. Right. Like there is like a pruning that happens there. There's something that in, there's like almost like, I hate to say it this way. Cause it sounds so cliche, like addition by subtraction, but like, you right. know what I mean? Like the God is purifying his people and growing his people in a sense where he's after the essence of true relationship with them and covenant relationship among them. And so that actually happens in church discipline. Doesn't it happen like in spite of church discipline? It happens because of church right. discipline. Right. This is like a real quantity, like a real action of God to work in our lives. So we should talk about like what it actually means. Yeah. And I would say that like church discipline generally, and I'm going to go back to what you just said because I love how you were just like, this happens every Lord's day. Like yeah. that's really the truth. It's a process of correcting sin in the life of the congregation and its members. And that can mean correcting sin through like a private word of admonition. And it can mean correcting sin by formally removing an individual from membership. So maybe there's, there is definitely like a continuum here, but church discipline can be done in any number of ways, but the goal is always in every way to correct transgressions of God's law among God's people. And when we look at it that way, it's not just about excommunication, which is generally where people jump to, right? Right. Yeah. They take that as though that's the, that's the church discipline. That's is, what it is. is. That or, or you know, barring them from the table, but maybe not casting them out of the church. That's discipline. Yes, those are things that are discipline. But when the pastor fences the table on the Lord's day, when you're doing the Lord's supper, and says to you, you need to examine yourself. You yes. Need to, you need to properly discern the body. And if you're not able to properly discern the body, then you need to you need to step back. Check That's yourself. church discipline too, right? When when the pastor calls you to. Uh, to reflect on your sins and repent and and reaffirm your trust in the gospel, which should be happening just about every Lord's day in one way or another, that is a form of church discipline. So let, let's go and let's talk about Matthew 18, right? Because this is the classic text that, that we go to. And, and there's a good reason for it, because it is super clear, super easy to understand. There's not a lot of places where you can really like mess it up, to be honest with you. I don't actually know any tradition in the entire history of the church that has interpreted this differently because it's just that straightforward. And so starting in verse 15, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained back your brother. 
But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, most people stop here, but I want to keep going because this is the most important part of the text, actually, if you ask me. He says, truly, and this is Jesus speaking, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so this, this process, we don't need to go into a lot of details about the process, right? It's really straightforward. It's super intuitive. Deal with your issues one-on-one if you can. And if you can't, bring some backup, people who either witnessed whatever happened or who are able to be a witness to the ongoing conversation, right? This is a passage that sometimes gets distorted and abused in terms of, um, you know, someone claims that they've been sexually abused or somebody said something in private. And, and this can sometimes be used to be like, well, you don't have any witnesses. Well, there are other ways to have witnesses. And some of that is bring with you, uh, after you've addressed, tried to address the situation directly, um, to bring with you other people who can now bear witness to how the situation is handled. Right. Then you bring with, uh, those two, three, they don't, they don't make any difference. The person is still recalcitrant in their sin. You still believe that they're in sin. And now you bring it before the entire church. And that's a step that most people have, I would say a lot of people have never actually experienced. And then once that person refuses to acknowledge the correction of the church, right? This is not, um, I think some people look at this and they think this is a form of trial right? This is, you bring the person, they say, no, I didn't do that. Or no, that's not sinful. You bring some other people. And the point is to have them adjudicate, you know, kind of like adjudicate the situation and that doesn't work. So then you bring it to the church and the church kind of holds a trial and, and makes a verdict. That's not what's in view here. The, the right. fact of the sin is assumed throughout the entire process. So when you go to the church to tell it to them, the assumption in this passage, at least, is that the church already has agreed with you. The church is already, uh, you know, this isn't saying like stand up on a Sunday morning and hit everybody with it by surprise, right? right. Th- this meeting or this gathering they're talking about, this ecclesia, this church they're talking about, this is already something that you've already discussed with the elders. You've already presented it to them. This is a verdict that's being delivered. It's not a trial. It's a statement of a fact. And so if they refuse to listen to the confrontation of the, the entire church, then you treat them as someone who is no longer a part of the church. They're a Gentile or a tax collector. They're excluded from the fellowship. And that's something that I think people, it's a hard pill to swallow. And if they've never been a part of it, they, they probably haven't seen how this actually has a restorative and reconcil- you know, reconciliatory effect. Yeah. Right. But it, it really is a necessary step. And this is, this is what I see happening in a lot of situations like Mark Driscoll, or uh, Tullian Tavidian, or other kind of high-profile cases, especially in these ones where people have dodged church discipline, is they've dodged it largely because other Christians have refused to do what this commands, Mm -hmm. right? Once they've been 
you know, excommunicated from their church or once they've been cast out of their congregation, most of the time they just go find another congregation. Or in people like Mark Driscoll or Tulian Davidian's case, they just go start another congregation. And right. and so we have to understand this process and what it means and how the following verses play into it if we're going to understand what we actually need to do, not just as a local church, but as the capital C church, how we're to think about and relate to these other these other uh, situations. By the way, I want to, again, maybe I've said this before, so somebody will call me out as having repeated myself here. But this is another of my theological pet peeves, which appears in Matthew 18, verse 20. Yes. Which is, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. That is like a specific promise given the context. In other words, it's almost as if God is saying, listen, this is a complicated and hard process. And my presence goes with you when you need to administer church discipline by way of bringing together this communal responsibility to administer it. That's not like the just, it's often quoted like where there's a couple of people who are praying because the prayer meeting attendance is low. Don't worry. Right. God is present among you. This is a particular promise, right? Yeah. And this is where, this is where this is important, right? Because when you get into verse 18 and it says, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you right. loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is not some separate distinct thing that's being talked about. Exactly. The treating, uh, treating this person who has refused to submit to the discipline of the church as a Gentile or tax collector, treating them that way is binding them on earth as they are bound in heaven. Right. And so what we're trying to do as a church, we can't see hearts, right? We are only we only have access to visible categories. And so so this final step of this process is to say all of the visible categories that we have access to shows us that you are not a repentant sinner. You are right. not a repentant person, and therefore you are not a member of the church. You're not a, remen- a, a repentant uh, person in the church. Therefore, we don't believe you to be a Christian. And so we are binding you on earth by our proclamation, our judicial proclamation, to say that what we are recognizing is that you are not among us. Now, we, we can say that and not still, still not be saying, therefore, we condemn you. Therefore, right, we are exactly. the ones who are causing the judgment, right? That's kind of the Roman Catholic model. What we're doing is we are proclaiming the reality that we have assessed based on the behavior of the person and the standing of the church. And that's why it's important, because when everything started happening with Mark, Mark Driscoll and with Tully and Chavidian, I started getting interested in this church discipline process, because it was something that I sort of understood but didn't really understand. And one of the convictions that I came to, and I coined this little phrase, that opting out of church discipline is opting out of the church. Not only for the reasons that I said earlier, that church discipline just is the church, that that's just a function of the church. If you don't want it, then you can't be a part of the church. But this last part, Jesus is not standing in the midst of the two or three witnesses here and the church who have bound them on heaven. He's standing there confirming their verdict, confirming their assessment. He's standing there as the sort of the, the final vote to agree with those, the two or three who have come to say, this person is a tax collector, this person is a Gentile. So when you refuse to submit to the church, you're also refusing to submit to the Lord of the church who is present among them. And so that's that's really important because now when we start to look at people, whether it's whether it's your your Christian friend who refused to listen to the discipline of the church and was asked to leave, um, Something that would happen, I'm not a, I'm not a, an admin in the Reform Pub anymore, but something that would happen from time to time, would we would, we would get a, a message from someone that would say such and such a person in 
uh, in the group uh, has been excommunicated from our church. They, they were under church discipline. We would always say, please don't share details. We don't need to know those. But they would say, this person has been excommunicated from our church. And what we would almost always do as a, as a leadership team in the, the pub is we would contact that person and say, we've been told that you have been excommunicated from your church. And is this true? And if they said, yes, it is true, then we would say, well, then I'm sorry, but you can't be part of our Christian fellowship anymore because you're not a Christian, because the the church has made a statement that you are not a Christian, that they don't observe any evidence in your life that you are a Christian. And so even, even something as informal as that, that might happen, you know, let's say you're a member of a church that has to excommunicate someone and that person's your friend. Well, how do you, how do you handle that? How do you relate to that person? Well, it's okay to have non-Christian friends. And so there's a certain level where you can still go out for coffee with them. You can still hang out with them, but you have to be careful and, and cautious and not communicate to them that you believe them to be a Christian because the church has made that declaration and that recognition of the fact that they aren't. And so we can right. undercut what the church's responsibility and disciplining is and the purpose of discipline, right? The purpose of discipline is to win back the brother, at least in large part. It's not the only purpose, right. but it's in, in this passage, that's the main passage in view. When you refuse to acknowledge the church's discipline by way of, of not, uh, not recognizing and acting accordingly, that what the church has done is say this person is not a believer. When you refuse to acknowledge that, you're actually reinforcing this idea that that person does not need to come back and hear the right. gospel and repent exactly. of their sins. And so we have to be really cautious about that. And that's where it comes in with like people like Mark Driscoll. Mark was put under church discipline. He uh, was told you need to have this process where you uh, are corrected and chastised and ideally are, are brought back to repentance and your behavior is corrected. And he basically said, like, I'm not interested in that. I'm going to I'm going to go start my own thing again. And when we uh, when we still listen to their sermons. Now, now, I'm not saying don't listen to an old Mark Driscoll sermon, but when we actively consume his current sermons or, or Tulian Chavidian, for example, if we actively listen to his sermons for the purpose of listening to a sermon by a Christian pastor, then we are doing the same thing. We are continuing to treat them as though they are qualified for ministry, as though they are Christians in good standing in the church, when in reality, the church has recognized this person is to be to us a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, you now are circumventing the church's authority to do that and to recognize that because you refuse to recognize it likewise. So let's back up on that just a second, because I think some people are going to hear that and they're going to bristle against it. They're going to say like, well, you're saying that they're not Christian, but there's certainly things that they're saying that are minister to me or have had profound impact on my life. And I, I think what you're emphasizing is that we need to understand the spirit behind God's law here with respect to church discipline, which he has himself ordained in the life of his church. And there is several parts to it. One is that, like you've said, the idea here is not to be like some trying to create some kind of sense of like ousting somebody for the sake of disagreement, but that it is supposed to be remedial. And so it's meant to help this individual. And and we're talking about the extreme sense, like excommunication is that extreme sense. So let's just keep in that lane for a second, because that's where everybody wants to go. So church discipline, even in that sense, is meant to help an individual Christian and their congregation grow in godliness, in this God-likeness. And so church discipline is, there's a couple of different adjectives we might use. One is that it is prophetic since it's trying to shine the light of God's truth into error and sin. That's a big deal. Right. And so it's trying to expose, let's say like, like a doctor might, cancer in an individual's body. 
and then to extract that cancer, to cut it out, to treat that very thing. It's also proleptic in the sense that there's like this microcosmic picture of judgment in the present that warns that there's an even greater judgment to come if the error is not corrected. Right. That's a really gracious thing. I mean, God is basically saying, look at these sign points that say, you are in danger. You are outside the family of God. I've created these means by which to warn you. And that warning is nothing if it's not gracious. It would be like, suppose like a teacher gave again, like passing grades to a student's failing test throughout the semester because they were just like in fear of discouraging that student. Right only to fail them at the end because they just don't have a proper conception of reality. Yeah. They can't pass the actual test. There's nothing gracious about that. And so in the same way, church discipline is this really loving way to say to an individual caught in sin, listen, be careful because an even greater penalty will result if you continue on this path. Please, please, I implore you, turn back now. And so whether it's at like the pastoral level or at the lay level, I actually see this as God saying, I've created a superstructure to help you to process what is proper, what it means to actually follow closely after my son. And when you deviate from that path, there's a means, there's a direction, there's a proper way to say, come back. And I think we're so keen to actually say instead, like, we don't want to offend people or what, like if, if Mark Driscoll or Tulian Tradition, if they're, I can't even say his last name half the time. Like, I'm just going to say like, it's like sand in my mouth. (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like gravel in there. Like if they are saying something good and that seems biblical, I actually really appreciate what you're saying, which is you need to evaluate what you're communicating to right. a quote unquote brother or sister, because the family member who enables bad behavior is not a loving family member right. at some point. They're actually doing like immeasurable damage. They're not doing good, even if you think that's what's easy for you. Yeah. So this is like a really broad topic. But I think that here's the interesting thing. Based on what you're saying, and this is fascinating, I think, actually, for people to consider, is that the family of God is one that transcends natural relationship. I think we'd all agree on that. Right. And so by virtue of that fact, even when you support in an explicit way people who are allegedly Christians that are outside of like your normal interaction sphere of influence, like physical geography, that you are actually still doing great harm to them and to the family of God that is taking this like to the next level. But it's, I think the level that God requires. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, this is one of those things that at first does not seem intuitive. This, this idea of, you know, casting them out of the visible church, what that says about their status in, in heaven and as Christians. But if we if we just take a step back to, to ecclesiology, basically, right, the, the, the foundation of ecclesiology, why it is we have a visible church when we understand that the reality is invisible. And the reason we have a visible church and the reason we admit someone into, visible, into the visible church, this is part of why church membership is important. We did a, an episode on church membership way, 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 way ago. It's, it's actually yes. probably a good time for us to do another episode coming up soon. But the purpose of the visible church and, and membership in the visible church, and I don't want to get too hung up on you know, membership in a formal sense versus an informal sense. But when we admit someone into the visible church, initially by baptism, and then I would actually argue biblically, we we're, we should be keeping some sort of record of who is a member of the visible church and who's not. 
when we do that, we admit them into the visible church as a recognition of the fact that we believe them to be a part of the invisible church. Exactly. So although those two concepts are different and the boundaries may not line up exactly, we understand there are people in the visible church who are not members of the invisible church, and we can even understand for a time probably, probably not permanently, but for a time, someone who is in the invisible church but is not formally a member of a, of a visible church. Those two things are important because... When we have the visible church and the point of the visible church is to make a statement about who we believe to be a part of the invisible church, right. that's where church discipline comes in. Right. Because now when we've said we no longer are going to allow this person to be a part of the visible church, it is because we are in some sense recognizing and proclaiming and binding the fact on earth that we do not believe them to be a part of the invisible church. Right. And so this this is something that people are like, oh, I don't know about that. When everything happened with Tulian, this was long enough ago that people don't know the details. And it's not that important to be part of the details. But at one point, um, I reached out to the stated clerk of the presbytery that he was a part of because I was trying to figure out, you know, what what church did he hold membership in when he when he disappeared off the radar? And what was the status of that? Because there was all sorts of people, myself included, who when the news of his second round of affairs came out, that there was more than just the one, um, we were kind of crying out and saying, like, he needs to be excommunicated. We understand that his credentials as a minister of the gospel have been stripped from him. That's good. But at this point, it's, it's no longer just that he's not qualified for ministry. He's no longer qualified to be considered to be a Christian anymore. And the response people were getting was, well, he's not a part of the PCA anymore. He's not, he's not a member in the PC, any PCA church, so they can't excommunicate him, which is true. But when I dug into it, what happened is his membership was assigned to a given church. I don't remember the name of the church, but it was somewhere in South Florida. And after a certain amount of time of not being able to get in touch with him, they removed him from their church membership roles. And this is where it's key. That act of removing them from the church membership roles is intended by the PCA to mirror the act of God blotting out someone from the book of life. Right. So theologically, and this is important, theologically, church membership is an earthly picture of membership in the, in the eternal uh, invisible church. The membership roles of a given church, of a given physical local congregation, is supposed to be a representation of the eternal membership role in God's invisible yes. church, which is the book of life. And so striking someone's name out of the uh, membership roles of the local visible church is supposed to be an earthly version of striking their name out of the eternal invisible church membership list, so to speak. And that's important because when we, now, like I said, when we treat that person as though, well, you know, they don't have a visible membership, they've been kicked out of this church, but you know, they're still Christian. They still believe in Jesus. They still love Jesus. They're still qualified to preach to thousands of people on Sunday. They're still qualified to go speak at conferences as a Christian representing the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we say and do things like that, we're not only reinforcing to that person that they're a Christian, Right. I guarantee you that when Mark Driscoll looks at his download numbers, and I'm sure that he's on that like a hawk or his social media team is at least, that he justifies his own ongoing existence as a pastor of, of Trinity Church in Phoenix, Arizona. His qualifications to preach, his qualifications, his justification that he's a Christian rests on the fact that people out there are giving him affirmation of his sermons and his ministry by consuming his media. I'm sure the same thing is true of Tulian Tavidian, right? 
and the same thing could be true of, well, you know, like my friends and I get together at Starbucks and we do a Bible study every week. And I know that Jason from the church down the street just got kicked out because he, you know, he's been sleeping with his girlfriend and refused to repent. But, you know, he can still come to our Bible study. That's fine. That is actually reinforcing to them the idea that they are part of the invisible church. Right. When the church itself, with Jesus standing in the midst of them, as the, as the judge who confirms the verdict. Think of it this way. The church is the jury, and they render a verdict. The, the, the job of the judge, in, at least in the American court system, is to ensure and to confirm and to put into force of law the verdict of the jury, to establish that and to then confirm it and make it official. That's what's going on in this passage. The church observes the situation— they hear evidence, they take testimony, and then they, they make a statement based on that testimony, based on that evidence, this person is no longer to be considered part of the invisible church, so signified by expulsion from the visible church. The point of Jesus saying that when two or three gather and ask something, the Father will do it, and then saying, for where two or three are gathered, I'm there with them, is to be that judge. So it'd be like if 12 random strangers get together and say, well, we know you committed this murder. That doesn't do anything. I mean, it right. might change your reputation, but it doesn't do anything. But when those same 12 groups of strangers get together in a courtroom and the, the, the foreman of the jury delivers the verdict to the judge and the judge, the judge reads it and then the foreman declares it and then the judge hits the gavel, that's a sentencing. That's what's going on here. So that would be like if you said, well, yeah, I know that Jimmy just got convicted of murder. But, uh, you know, he's going to break out of prison and I'm going to I'm going to still have him at my house. We're going to still have a barbecue. Well, what you're doing is you're undercutting the justice system by acting as though he's not a convicted murderer when he is. And it's the same kind of thing that's happening when we act as though someone is not a, quote, convicted tax collector and Gentile, when in actual reality, they are a convicted tax collector and Gentile. Right. I mean, definitely seems like a little bit too casual to have a barbecue. Yeah, I mean, if, like, if, if Jason from the church down the street got convicted of murder, then you probably don't want to have him at your barbecue. <laughs> right. But your point is, is really good. I mean, behind church discipline is one of the grand projects of redemptive history, the project of restoring God's fallen people to the place where they will once more image God as right. they extend his benevolent and life-producing rule throughout creation. So local churches should be those places on earth where the nations can go, literally, to find humans who are increasingly image God, truly, and honestly. Right. That's what we're after here. And that's why he's created this. And it shouldn't come as any surprise, right? Because if anybody has belonged to like any kind of, let's say like vocational group that requires licensing, yeah. uh, of which like I'm a part of, if you do certain things, it just gets revoked, like right. outright. And people from the outside would say, yeah, it ought to be. Because if you have some serious infraction of the rules of the decrees that establish that group, if you violated trust, if you've lied, if you no longer exhibit the essence of what a person who belongs to that group should be, then you ought to be kicked out. Right. We recognize this like in all kinds of ways. And so like, I've, I've often heard this joke, maybe you've heard this and this, I don't actually, this, I was going to say it might be majoritative toward Presbyterians, but actually it might be complimentary. So for what it is, just, it's just the way I've heard it. Several I'm times, sure they don't care like, either way. <laughs> well, there's this like old joke about like a bunch of pastors getting together from a community. And there was like a recent revival and you know, I don't know, like the Methodists are like, 
we, we, you know, during this time period of revival, we had like six new members join the church and the Baptists are like, well, that's nothing. We had like 10 new Baptists or 10 new people join the Baptist church. And the Presbyterians are like, well, that's nothing. We had 10 troublemakers leave the church. <laughs> and like the whole point of that, of course, is again, what we're talking about here, that yeah. like God is really after making sure that his church is this place on earth where there's increasing holiness and piety, not out of legal obligation or rote obedience, but because people are increasingly transformed by the grace of God and therefore live according to the law in a way that is written on their hearts because of the sacrifice of Jesus and its right. application by the Holy Spirit. So it's odd to me that we would say like, well, this just seems too dramatic or maybe what we're talking about is too extreme. But is it? Is it extreme enough in the sense that like what God requires is that we all hold each other accountable and that church discipline happens by way of casual conversation and also by means of official proclamation as Jesus, our example in the head of the church, has dialogued and presented himself beginning yeah. in Matthew 18. Yeah. Yeah. Good analogy. Now that you bring it up, maybe even better than the jury judge analogy. If, if you know, you're for a doctor and you yes, do something wrong, right? Right. You do something wrong. And, right. and what happens usually is your peers will confront you on it. Right. I've, I've seen this happen in my work at the hospital. It's usually not super dramatic. It's usually as simple as, you, you know, you, and Doctors are human, so I hope I'm not wrecking anyone's perspective of the, the medical system. Doctors do things wrong. They make mistakes. They sometimes are ignorant. Sometimes they make a bad recommendation. And usually what happens is their peers will confront them. Uh, you know, like one doctor does something and that causes a problem. And then the next doctor, uh, that person gets, might give them a phone call and say, Hey, I just saw a patient that you used to see. And here's something that you should know. The purpose of that is to make them a better doctor in the beginning, at least. Once a doctor does things that are, are are accumulative and they don't seem to be learning, or they do something so egregious that action needs to be taken right away, their medical license is revoked. Right. Now, imagine if that doctor just went to the next hospital over and that hospital right. hired them like nothing right. had gone wrong, like nothing nothing was a big deal. That's essentially what we're doing when we, um, when we do that. Because here's the reality. When that person's medical license is revoked, they're not really a doctor anymore. Right. They might have a medical degree. They might they might know a lot about the human body. They might speak a good talk. They might even be able to show you and maybe be able to produce some good effects, the same kind of things a doctor would. Right. But but in terms of like their actual status, they're not actually a doctor anymore. Right. But if they go and they get hired at the next the next hospital over, then they might look like a doctor. They might be practicing as a doctor. They might they might even be seeming to be redeemed or or um recuperated from their, their illness, you know, their kind of their issue that they had. But at the end of the day, if that other hospital hires them, then what that hospital has done is they've allowed that person to continue to think and act as though they're a doctor when they really right. aren't right? right. When they really are not qualified to be doing whatever it is they're doing. And I know that that's a hard pill to swallow. I've had times where I've had to say to somebody that I know and that I'm close to who's been asked to leave a church where I had to say, you know, we can certainly get together, but the reality is that I need to share the gospel with you and you need to repent just like any other sinner who is apart from Christ. And there was a time when I was actually asked to leave a church when I was younger. And that was the most restorative thing that anyone has ever done to me. That's the, mm. it was the worst experience of my life at the time. It sucked really bad. And I could not wait to figure out how did I fix it? How do I fix the situation? And the way that the situation was fixed is I went back and I said, you were right. I recognize that what you were saying was right. And it's time for me to come clean. And I didn't have to go before the whole church. 
to do that. Uh, I went, you know, I went before a group of people that were part of the church and were part of the original conflict and was able to say to them, I'm really sorry. I, I really, really am sorry. I recognize that you're doing this for my good. I recognize the sin in my life that precipitated this. Please forgive me and please allow me to come back to this fellowship. And that is what this is about, right? It is true that sometimes church discipline is there to get a non-Christian out of the church and to keep them out of the church. Sure. That's part of it, right? The purity of the church is in view in all of this. But more often than not, the purpose and the outcome of good church discipline is the restoration of a believer who probably was just a little bit lost at the time and just needed a little bit of a firm hand to get back on their footing. And that that's the beauty of church discipline. And this is where it gets frustrating to me. And, and then we can wrap because I know we're already on like going on the second hour of a one hour podcast here. <laughs> Had, I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, but had somebody, uh, had the church refused to continue to give Mark Driscoll a platform or continued to uh, refuse to give Tulian Chividian a platform or had somebody taken appropriate church discipline actions with Ravi Zacharias or James McDonald or any of these other high profile people that we've seen. Um, Derek Webb, we had a whole episode about Derek Webb and his apostasy. Well, one of the things that, that came out is that Derek Webb was engaged in all, you know, a various assortment of sinful things while he was, a you know, a contemporary Christian star had church discipline been executed in those situations. There is, I think a good likelihood that those people could have been brought back from the, from the fire. They could have been snatched from the fire and rescued, but because either out of ignorance of the process lack of spine or fortitude or just a desire to not not upset the apple cart because people refuse to do it, those people are very likely lost. And obviously all of this happens in God's sovereignty. We're not undercutting any of that. But the fact of the matter is that those people were not forced to deal with the consequences of their sin in any real situation, in any real circumstance, or any real way. And their sin has destroyed them and has has basically cast them out of the kingdom. Now, we don't know what's going to happen. Mark Driscoll may still have a period of repentance, although it seems as though he's back up to his old antics and things are just repeating again in Phoenix that happened in Seattle. Um, Tulian Chavidian appears to be preaching, and and you know I think it's only a matter of time before things happen again, and he he falls again and, and because there's been no repentance. There's been no real discipline, no real growth that anyone has been able to identify. But the purpose of church discipline, whether it's local church discipline or the church broadly— as us as believers, uh, submitting to the the wisdom and the authority of the churches which which executed on them locally, all of that is for the purpose of restoring them and for the peace and purity of the church. And we should not presume to be wiser than the church at large and and pretend as though we know better and that they did it wrong. We may not say that explicitly, but a lot of times we do that and we we signal that with our actions. And that's really just a tragedy. So I'm going to propose something. This is like everybody's getting an insight into a real-time meeting. I would like to propose that we actually continue this conversation for one more episode and maybe speak a little bit about more of the foundations, but also how the church should practice discipline. Because I don't know that we spent as much time as we might like to talk about, well, what does it look like to take Matthew 18 into the context of your local church? And what do all those steps look like in the flesh? How do you feel about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like you paint me into a corner here, so I'm going to need you to, uh, I mean, I've already got like the witnesses on this podcast, like average of like six or 700 on launch day. So I think probably just give me the phone number to your elders and we'll take it from there. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And like I said, we're kind of the hive mind. I was already planning on on that uh, for the next one. We'll probably talk a little bit more about church church membership and why that's important yes. and, and some biblical foundations for that, because it really is all interwoven. You can't talk about church discipline. You know, that's part of it is this passage. You can't actually do this process unless you actually have a formal, robust, right, official form of church membership in order to ac- accomplish it. Right. So everybody can look forward to that. We'll talk a little bit about some more specific tasks, texts. We'll get into Matthew 16 and 1 Corinthians, which we didn't really get into today. We'll talk about well, what are these examples of formal church discipline and how people looked at it in the past, I think these are helpful to, again, kind of flesh out some of what we're talking about here. And again, I want to give a quick plug. One of the things that I looked up immediately, we went to Matthew 18, and of course, I went right away to Locust Bible Software, which allowed me to take a look at a couple of different versions of that translations of Matthew 18, which again, provided more color and context, but also I've got this like beautiful, like Greek parallel up and I know nothing about Greek, but that's the beauty of logos is like, it's giving you all of this beautiful translation and some explanation. So to me, that's actually been a really valuable tool while we've just been talking. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this is one of those passages too. We didn't get into it. Maybe we'll talk about it a little, a little bit later, but most of your translations are going to, uh, verse 15 is going to say, if your brother sins against you, right? but there are probably right. some of you out there that it just says, if your brother sins. Yes. And although I, as someone who's seminary trained and able to look at the Greek and look at the text criticism and understand how to suss all that out, most people are not. And so being able to quickly pull up these, uh, these distinct uh, translations and look at them side by side. You know, I can say, well, the ESV, the NIV, the CSB, and the Lexham English Bible, those all have against you, but the NASB does not. Well, that probably signals to me that maybe I should should favor the translations that have it versus the ones that don't, which is not in numbers. It's not always a good case, but also, if you have, if you've purchased a commentary, or if you've gotten one of the free commentaries that you can get on their um, free book of the month once in a while. There's probably a good commentary that talks about that text criticism, and you can have that all in one spot. So if you are uh, interested in picking up a Logos base package, you can go to logos.com slash reformbrotherhood, and you'll get a 10% discount on a base package of your choosing, along with five free books from their selection. And, you know, that really is a generous discount. I know that I know that people hear us say that, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's a generous discount. It really is a generous <laughs> discount, because depending <laughs> on how you, you know, which package you purchase, that could be a significant amount of money that Lagos is choosing to forego in order to help us as a podcast, in order to help our listeners get deeper in the word. Um, So please do check it out. If you're at all thinking about it, please go check it out. Please go look at it. You can download the free version of Lagos, which comes with some some resources just to get a feel for how the the platform works. And I think if you do that, you're actually going to see how useful this tool is. And then you can go back to Lagos.com slash Reform Brotherhood to purchase a base package for yourself. And very lastly, we would be remiss if we didn't say yet again that we're so thankful for everybody who listens, participates in the conversation, leaves us voicemails, sends us emails. And of course, a part of that group are those who've gone to patreon.com backslash reform brotherhood and are actually supporting the podcast after, of course, all the responsibilities financially to the local church. And we have somebody else, another brother who joined us in that mission. So I want to thank especially brother Will who has joined us in giving through Patreon. We are so thankful. So thanks, Brother Will. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm feeling a little generous. We are going to extend <laughs> the, uh, because it's not quite fair for me to like pitch this and then this is going to come okay. out after the deadline. Okay. So we are, uh, we are getting very close to sending out these special mug shaped, non mug gifts that we've hinted at and accidentally <laughs> revealed what they are. Uh, we're going to send those out to anyone who is a current Patreon subscriber as of, let's say, uh, July 5th. Right. So okay. this episode will come out on July 2nd. So if this is the first time you are hearing it. You still have a few days to go in and register as a Patreon supporter. We're not going to put a dollar amount on there. If you're an active supporter at any value, then we're going to send you a gift. So please, if you are a supporter, please go in and make sure your address is correct. So when we do finally get this gift up and running, we have the right way to get it to you. And if you're interested in becoming a supporter or if you just want this sweet gift and you want to just support us for one month and then then peace out, that's fine, too. We'll, we'll be, uh, we'll be good with that. We're not going to complain. We love you. We appreciate but, you. But uh, you're going to love this thing. And I mean, I've been putting it together and working on it. I think it's such a cool <laughs> little thing we're, we're sending out. So we'll, uh, we'll make it known, but this is limited edition. This is truly limited edition. This will never be available for purchase on our website. Um, yep. So if you want this special gift, then you've got to, I feel like I've flipped into like, like uh, VPR drive yeah. or NPR, um, you know, like support drive program like i'm gonna yes. be putting together like a duffel bag and like a football phone soon with our with our logo on it seriously one one day it's gonna happen but listen yeah. dear hearts you know the drill until next time honor everyone love the brotherhood oh.